0: Is it is it universally bad, universally good? No. Is it a viable option in a lot of cases? Sure. Is it a bad idea in a lot of cases? Absolutely. So, did I answer your question? Probably not. Digwins Radio, episode 913 starts in 3 2 End of January, end of the first month of 2021. Hopefully the new year has gotten off to a good start for you, or at least uh, starting to trend that way. You know, sometimes you get off to a little bit of a slow start, stub your toe, struggle a little bit, but hopefully you're starting to find your groove. And if you started off hot and uh, have faded a little bit in the last week or two, hopefully, you know, kind of getting to the end of the first month, you can use that as a chance to refocus, reset, and get back on track because there's still a lot of time left this year to, to still have a pretty darn good year. No matter how things shake out in the world with the virus, this, that, and the other, uh, lots of opportunities. Hopefully, at least, lots of opportunities to still have a pretty darn good year. And it starts today. You know, keep keep waiting, keep putting it off, keep waiting until next week, next month. Uh, pretty soon it'll be next year, and and this year will be coming and gone, and maybe hasn't been as great or as at least good as it could have been. So, uh, like I said, hope your year is off to a good start. Uh, and if it, if it's struggling a little bit, hey, now is as good a time as any to get back on track. But before we turn the calendar over to February, while you're getting back on track starting today, hey, I'll keep you company for a little bit. And I don't know how long it's going to be today as per usual with these Q&A episodes. There's, there's 20-something questions today, so it could be a minute. But uh, hopefully something today will help you uh, kind of spur you in that direction to really kind of get back on track. So if you're new around these parts, welcome to uh, the the monthly thing that is the monthly listener Q&A episode. This is really simple how this works. You ask questions, I give you answers. Sometimes the answers are useful. Sometimes maybe I miss the mark. I don't know, I I try not to, of course, but I will admit that uh, maybe sometimes things get lost in translation or I just simply... Don't have the right answer. Uh, I like to think when I'm in doubt, I'll I'll give you that disclaimer. But anyway, it's free advice, right? Free get free chance to get your questions answered. So uh, I guess at, at worst you get what you pay for. At best, maybe you get a little bit of value out of it. Um, but to get your questions answered on next month's or next month's or the next month's episode of the Q and A episode. Uh, It's really easy. All you got to do is head over and join the Facebook group. Technically, you can send me your questions any old way you want to. I've gotten questions via email, via Twitter, via Instagram before. Um, I will say, though, that those questions are more likely to get lost in the shuffle. Um, I try not to lose them. I try to make notes, but every once in a while, as a few folks can probably attest, they've asked a question and it never got answered because they weren't part of the Facebook group. But if you're in the Facebook group... About 10 days before the last Friday of the month, which the last Friday of the month is always when this episode comes out, in case you haven't been paying attention, um, a week and a half before that, I put out a post that says, hey, what are your questions? You put your questions in the comments. They all stay there. And then I just pull up that post and uh, bada boom, bada bam, here we go. So if you want to get your questions answered in a future Q&A episode, uh, that is the best way to do it. And all you got going to do then is join the Facebook group. It's free. It's um, free. You know, it's it's another Facebook group, which I know none of us really need to be in another Facebook group yet. All of us tend to keep joining more and more. At least I tend to keep joining more and more Facebook groups. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you are more judicious about your Facebook group joinage than I am. But, uh, if you're on Facebook, just search for the Disruns tribe, click to join and we'll uh welcome you in with open arms and if you want to just use a, an easy link to get there it's disruns dot com slash facebook disruns dot com slash facebook directs you right to the page. you click to join. we accept you, uh, and unless you you know come in and start spamming us with a whole bunch of random stuff that's not related to running uh you know. We'll let you stay, and we'll get to know you and crack some jokes with you, hopefully, and, and have a good time. And then, of course, you can get your questions answered each and every month. I mean, you can get your questions answered any time of the month, but uh, hopefully you save a good one for the Q&A episode. And uh, that's what we've got going on today. So all that to say, let's uh, let's dive in, shall we? The first question comes from Kenton, who asks, What is your verdict on cross-friction fr- cross massage on your Achilles? The, at- the internet... Goodness gracious! I can't even read today. Apparently, the internet seems divided on this one. Um, that's a that's a that's a humdinger right off the bat uh, there, Kenton. Um, but it's it's a good question, and and I am not the resident massage expert that much is true uh obviously we did a little bit of massage work maybe not obviously but i'm here to tell you we did a little bit of massage work we studied massage a little bit uh in my athletic training classes and of course have done various massages on various athletes over the years in the training room setting um when it comes to cross friction massage cross friction massage hurts it's not comfortable uh it's not a whole lot of fun but there is benefit to it that said in your on your achilles tendon I would be more hesitant to say that there's a, a, a lot of benefit to it there. Um, part of the, the benefit of cross-friction massage, if I can remember correctly, is that it really increases blood flow to the tissue, right? You're breaking up the adhesions, you're breaking up the tissue a little bit, getting some blood flow to the area, help to move the waste products out, bring the healthy nutrients and whatnot back in to do whatever repair work that you're trying to go for. Um, and while there is blood flow in the Achilles, in, in any tendon, to be quite frank, um, it's not like there is in a muscle, you know, the, the muscle tissue itself. So I would be more likely to use cross friction massage on a muscle than on a tendon. Now your Achilles tendon is one of those special tendons; it's it's big enough, thick enough that, like you know, if you th- like, I think of other tendons and doing cross friction, like it really almost wouldn't even work because of the nature of how most tendons are structured. It's it's more of a cord like si- you know situation. It's not a lot of cross sectional area to do cross friction massage on the Achilles is an exception to that. It's a bigger, thicker tendon that said, I don't think you're going to get as much benefit from it. I think you'd be better off working with the direction of the fibers in the Achilles tendon than against it. Um, this is one of those where your mileage may vary, but if it was, you know, if I'm doing the massage work, if I'm, if I'm advising, uh, I'm going to save the cross frictional massage for the muscle tissue itself in the Achilles or on the, along the Achilles tendon, uh, I'm gonna kind of go more north to south uh, with the way that those those fibers are lined up because I just don't think you're gonna get as much out of it from from a blood flow perspective with a cross frictional massage in the achilles. So, um, I guess I'm kind of hedging, but if I'm gonna agree with one side of the internet over the other, I would say cross friction massage not really that beneficial for the for the achilles tendon or any tendon. Um, save that for your muscle tissues uh, instead. So hope that helps and hope that, uh, you know, whatever's going on with your Achilles, assuming that there's something going on with your Achilles, uh, that it, that it settles down and, uh, you're able to get back at it pretty soon, Kenton. So thank you for the question. Next question comes from Diana. Uh, she asks, how do you politely tell a mileage snob to take a hike? Uh, this one is a little bit of underlying, uh, situation here. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. So maybe it makes sense. So Diana had posted something, um, on Instagram, I think maybe it was on our stories or wherever, wherever it was. I saw that, you know, she had posted her like weekly mileage. I think it was her weekly mileage. And it was, you know, something, something like, I, I can't remember the age, 37, 39, whatever it was, um, seven like, miles, right? We'll just say 37. Maybe it was a different number. It, th- that part of it doesn't matter. And, and I think her, her comment or whatever uh, was like, you know, a good, a good week of running. And then somebody sent her a message that was like, Hey, too bad. You only got 37 miles instead of what I would call it 38 miles, it's 37.97 or 95 or whatever. Like, hey, yeah, that's close enough. There's enough margin for error in pretty much all of our watches that, you know, .05 over the course of a week, over the course of that many miles. Like, yeah, close enough. It's 38 miles. But this this clown, which would be the polite way of what I think of this person's actions, was like, no, 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 it's only 37 because you didn't get to 38.00. Now, if somebody does that to me, I don't know that polite is going to be my response. Um, you know, there, there might be a, a couple of choice words or maybe a, a good gif or meme that gets sent over basically telling them what they can, what they can do and where they can shove it and where they can go with it, especially, and I don't know all the exact details here, but especially if it's somebody that I like, I don't know at all. Right. Like, like, I feel like that's one of those things that like, if we've got a really buddy buddy relationship and, um, you know, we, we like to, to, to crack jokes at each other and give each other a hard time, then, then maybe. I can see a situation where I can be like, yeah, sorry, Dana, that's only it's really only 37 miles. You realize that, right? Uh you didn't get to 38, so it's only 37. Knowing that she would know, because of our relationship, assuming we had that level of level of a relationship, that like, clearly, job well done, good productive week, you know, yes, great, great work. Um, but if if we don't have that level of a relationship, like I, I don't. I mean, like I said, my response would not be polite, more than likely, if I responded. And I think that's 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 maybe the, the answer to the question, Diana. Now that we got the backstory kind of under the way, um, I think that probably not responding is the best bet because assuming that you don't know this person, that they're just that they're just looking to seek a reaction, they're basically trying to troll you a little bit and be a dick at the, at the same time. Um, any reaction is just going to like fuel that fire, right? That they're just like, "Yep, we got to her." Next time I see a post, like I'm gonna I'm gonna say the same thing. Like they're just trolling to troll. I feel like at that, at that point, like clearly they're not, they're not being nice. Like, like they're just a not nice person. So when you, if you respond anyway, other than, I mean, like I said, I would just ignore because if you respond, then, then the game's going to continue. If you just ignore it, maybe hit the old block button. Um, then you don't have to deal with it in the future. So I don't know. I mean, you responded much nicer than I did, uh, than I would have. So kudos to you for that. But ain't nobody got time for that type of negativity, right? Like seriously, who ain't nobody got time for that. So uh, hopefully this person won't keep popping back up on your, on your feed. And if they do just block them, block them, that's maybe not polite, but that's better than, than my gut instinct, which we, we shared a laugh about what my gut instinct would have been in that situation. So uh, like I said, Diana, you handled it much better than I did, but this clown needs to just go take a long walk off. Of, maybe not off a short pier. That might be a little bit drastic, but needs to get on off your, your, your Instagram. And if that means you got to block him, then block him, whatever. Ain't nobody got time for that. Uh, but hope, uh, hope you have another good month, Diana. And if you end up with a 0.97 or a 0.9, whatever at the end of a week or the end of a month, I promise you round it up. It's fine. It's fine because your, your Garmin, you know, might not be that accurate anyway, like to that level. Like it's fine. It's fine. Next question from Scott. Can a stability shoe be too stable? Yes. Yes, it can. Um, not all stability shoes are created equal as far as the amount of stability that they provide and how they provide it. Sometimes it's more of a hard bottom. Sometimes it's a little bit softer, but there's there's still some structure there. Um there's definitely variety there. Sometimes it's more something, the stability is built into the sole of the shoe. So it just kind of is how your, it helps to correct your foot, how it hits the ground as opposed to really changing the position of your shoe inside it with something like in the insole that, that does the correction. So uh, yes, definitely stability shoes, maybe not too stable, but from one style of stability shoe to another, there can be some differences. So if, if you really rely on a stability shoe, if that's something that, that is necessary for you, which... I've said before, and I'm not going to break it down for... Like, I'm not going to try to to tell you to to get away from a stability shoe here, Scott. Um, But I think that stability shoes in general tend to be over-prescribed and, and not as necessary as they, they tend to be. Um, although if you've been running a stability shoe forever and you switch to a, a neutral shoe, cause you're like, yeah, this clown on the podcast said that maybe they're not as necessary as possible. There might be an adjustment period that needs to go through there. So it might be a little bit, you know, it might get worse before it gets better. So then you're like, Oh, well, man, I guess I really do need stability shoes. I so mean, it's, it's a self-perpetuating cycle sometimes, but all that to say to answer your question, yes, there again, can they be too stable? Eh, maybe not. But can it be, can there be an adjustment period or can you, can you get, you know, go from one style of shoe or one brand to another, Hey, stability, stability, we're good to go here and like have problems with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, just something to think about something to think about when you're switching different types of shoes, um, that you might need some stability, but, and I don't know that there's a grading scale. I'm sure there probably is, but I don't know it off the top of my head as far as, you know, gradient of stability. Um, but that's, that's. That's a question that I don't have an answer to that I just asked of myself. So here's where your mileage may vary, right? But that's, that would maybe be a question for the people at the, at the, the, you know, the shoe store to ask them, you know, what, what level of, you know, is this a really stable shoe, a partially stable, like this is what I'm wearing and kind of know, like, are you wearing something that's really stable, got some stability, how the stability fits that works for you. I need something similar when it comes time to switching out the shoes, but uh, definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, when it comes to, to trying new shoes, if you're wearing a stability shoe, not all stability shoes are created equal. So thank you for the question, Scott, and hope you're, uh, you're fu- on the right track to finding uh, the right shoes for you uh, as you're kind of navigating that which style of shoe, uh, you know, how much stability do you actually need? Next question from Liz. Is it better to train for balance with or without running shoes on? Yes. Yes. Um... This is one of those questions, and there's a lot of these questions today. I feel like I'm going to say this a bunch, where there's, there's variables here, and there are a lot of variables, and it's hard to give a black and white answer to a, a question that's, that's just begging for shades of gray. Um, this is one of those where, may, maybe this one isn't quite to that level. There's a, we'll get to a bunch of them that are, um, but this is one where, like, simply, is it better to train without your shoes on? Probably. But is there benefit to, to working on your balance, whether you're in shoes or not? Absolutely. So I tend to do my balance work when I do balance work, which is not not here to say that I'm a regular balance practitioner, but when I when I do it, I tend to go barefoot. Now it helps that I'm wearing sandals, you know, 99% of the time when I'm not running. So, you know, I've never really had my running shoes on anyway. Um, so it's easy to just kick a sandal off and balance on one foot, right? But the reason that I do that is because when it, when it's just your bare foot or your socks and, and, and feet only, um, your, your foot is doing all the work. You're, you're getting all that sensory perception, the proprioception, all the little muscles and tendons and joints and ligaments, everything's working to maintain your balance. And the more, the more that you do that, the more stable you become, the, the, the easier it is for your body to, to, you know, have that balance, that coordination that can help us as runners when we're, you know, Literally, when you're running, you're never on both feet at the same time. You're always either balancing or you're in the air, right? So balance is kind of important. That said, working on your balance with your shoes on, yes, you may not get as much of that little inter intermuscular, inter-inter-articular uh, reactions and stability inside of your foot because the, the shoe is doing some of that work. You know, it's providing some, some, some stability, some structure. Your arch maybe isn't collapsing as much, especially depending on what kind of shoes you're wearing, et cetera, et cetera but you're still working balance, right? You're still working in your hips, your knees, um, your core, all those things are still firing when you're working on balance with your shoes on. So um, I feel like this is like a better best scenario, right? Is it better to train for balance? Yes, it's, it's a good thing to train your balance. Is it, would I make the argument that it's better to do it without your shoes on? Yeah, probably. But uh, you know, it's not like it's bad to train your balance with your shoes on. So if you're at the gym, You know, if you're doing something or you got your shoes on, you want to work your balance a little bit, do it. That's fine. You don't have to kick your shoes off, you know, but if you're, if you're maybe doing your balance work when you're whatever, when you're brushing your teeth, which is something I've recommended many times, well, you're probably in the bathroom, right? You probably aren't fully dressed or at least probably don't have your shoes all laced up and ready to go because you're brushing your teeth. So yeah, there's a time to work on your balance with, with bare feet, right? Get a little bit of both best of both worlds. Um, but yes, working balance better than not working balance. The rest is just details. So thank you for the question, Liz. Uh, next, we got a trifecta from Tom. As per usual, some random questions. And then, you know, actually a, uh, a one that's, that's serviceable, the rest of them random. So the first serviceable question from Tom, uh, as in, you know, kind of relates to running. The other ones are just fun, which we always like fun questions too. I don't mean to, don't mean to imply, Tom, that I don't like your questions. I love your fun questions. Um, just want to, you know, make sure we're on the same page here. Uh, first question. I've heard that some folks do not recommend foam rolling the IT band. What is the reasoning behind this advice, and do you agree? So, um, this is one of those where the, the the science or the research or the the uh, uh, advice has evolved over the years. Because back back in my day, like I'm like, like like I've been doing this for for decades. But like back when I was in college, which was 20 years ago, which is actually. Yeah. 20 years ago, I was, I was in college. It's, it's a little bit crazy for me to think about that. Um, but, but back when I was in college when I was, when I was just a lad studying athletic training, destined to be a, a, a athletic trainer for some professional hockey team, ideally the Red Wings at some point down the road. Um, we, I mean, r- foam rolling the IT band. That's, that's what you did. If you had, if you had IT band issues, if you had some of those knee tracking issues, patellar tracking issues that, that seemed to be related to IT band, you strengthened your core, you foam rolled the IT band cut and dry. Simple, simple as, as can be, um, somewhere along the lines, after I got out of college and after I kind of got out of the athletic training world a little bit more, um, the, the research and the advice kind of changed and that not that foam rolling the IT band is necessarily bad, but that it just wasn't that effective because the IT band is such a thick, dense tissue that foam rolling it is uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. So you kind of get that well, it, it hurts, so it must be you know it hurts so good situation, but you don't actually do any like you're not really changing the structure. You're not you're not doing anything to loosen it up to make it work better, right? But then how come it works? Like how come foam rolling the IT band seem to be so beneficial? Because what actually works better, and I think where the advice tends to be now, is to to foam roll kind of the junction, if you will. And I'm going to try to paint a picture here, and this may not work well. We'll see but to foam roll the junction between your IT band and your quad, which is the front of your leg. Your IT band being the lateral outside part of your leg. Quad being the front of your leg. Hamstrings being the back of your leg. So the back of your thigh, right? The quad's the front of the thigh. So if you foam roll the junction, kind of the, 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 the angle point between where the front of your, your thigh, between where your quad meets your IT band, the lateral part of your thigh, the outside part of your thigh. If you foam roll there, what you're actually doing, and what probably happened when you just foam roll your IT band anyway even without necessarily realizing it, what, what you're doing is you're breaking up the adhesions between the IT band itself and the underlying musculature which in this case is the quad because it kind of overlaps the edge of that lateral quad and you do the same thing on the backside between the IT band and where kind of the, the hamstring muscles kind of are, are you know end up underneath the, the edge of the IT band there so you're, you're foam rolling the the and breaking up, breaking apart the adhesions between the the tissue of the IT band and the muscle of the quad and the muscle of the hamstring. And what that does then is allows the tendon to kind of bend and flex and move and release a little bit independent of the musculature underneath it, which is ultimately what we were trying to go for when the idea was to just foam roll the IT band, except, you know, maybe it's nuance here. You know, you can call it what you want to call it, but it's not exactly like you're not exactly loosening up the IT band. You're loosening up the connections between the IT band and those different muscles. So, uh, that's, that's where I tend to, to fall on it now. Um, it's, it's easier, I guess, to say just I, foam roll the IT band, but technically, um, and maybe from a comfort level, it's a little bit easier and a little bit more beneficial to focus more on that junction between your quad and your IT band, your hamstring and your IT band still hurts though. It's still not, not pleasant, still not comfortable, at least in my experience, but beneficial. So, uh, if you're going to do some foam rolling of, of your body, make sure you're getting, or I would encourage you to get that area between, you know, kind of that 45 degree angle of your, of your outer thigh, both front and back, uh, to make sure that IT band stays nice and loose and, and, uh, or at least so that it doesn't get bogged down in that fascia in that connective tissue between the IT band and your quad and your hamstring, So that it keeps, you know, doesn't end up pulling too much on your patella, on your kneecap, giving you tracking issues and giving you those, that telltale pain in the knee of IT band syndrome. So hope all that made sense, Tom. Thank you for the question. Now for the the hogwash questions that Tom has thrown in this month. First one, is there any hope for the Detroit Lions? Well, yeah, Tom, of course there's hope for the Detroit Lions. As As a lifelong Detroit Lions fan, this is the time of year where hope springs eternal. Right, we just we just cleaned house, got rid of the GM, got rid of the head coach, brought in some new guys that are going to turn the tide, that are going to help the Lions return to mediocrity for the first time in uh, at least a handful of years. So yeah, this is this is the time to be hopeful from now until the draft. This is the time of year to be a Detroit Lions football fan after the draft then 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 we start to get a little bit nervous because we didn't draft the right guys or you know there's there's too many unknowns and and well, we didn't address this position that god we don't have we don't have anybody that that seems like a, an all-world player here uh, what are, you know who how are we going to plug in the, to this to fill this position what happens if this guy gets injured but from now until the draft man everything's good everything's good hope springs eternal then the season starts and then you know same old lions Right then, it's just ugh. Oh, the Lions, terrible, and you know, then the season's over by Halloween, and I, you know, I, I suffer through the Thanksgiving ga- Day game, and am somewhat thankful that you know I don't ever have to watch the Lions down here anymore because you know, like I get stuck watching the Bucks, which is not my idea of a good time. So I just don't watch much football, which not the end of the world. But yeah, there's hope for the Lions, and it's from now until you know somewhere in the first part of April, and then you know, then we abandon hope and and uh, you know wait until next year. There's always next year. Even before next year starts, when you're a Lions fan, uh, last question from Tom: Does Cadbury make good Valentine's Day candy? Now, see, Tom, this is where this is where you're trying to you're trying to get me to to, to take the bait and start ranting on Cadbury eggs. I'm not going to do that because I went to the Cadbury website and it said these guys they have to make more than those atrocious, disgusting, terrible cream filled eggs, right? Don't they? Of course they do. So you know, if you want to if you want to have a good Valentine's Day, get your Valentine. Some some Cadbury chocolate because the chocolate's fine, chocolate's good. Just you know, they don't have ved- valentine's day eggs, which is a good thing. So yeah, they make good valentine's day candy. It's called chocolate. Chocolate's good, and they don't they don't screw it up by putting some crappy cream in the middle of it. So yeah, Cadbury makes much better valentine's day candy than they do Easter candy. I'll tell you that much right there. So thank you for the questions, Tom, as per usual. Next question from Karen, should I do any t- any kind of warm up before my 50k or could I count walking to get my packet and finding the restrooms a warm up? So, so you know, for for a race like a 50k, uh obviously you're going to be out there for a minute. Um in most cases, you're not going to just hammer it from the from the outset. So, yeah, Karen, I think that that yes, you should do some type of warm up before a 50k, but I think your warm up for a 50k is going to look a lot different than your warm up for a 5k. Right? like you don't need to do any running beforehand. You know, if you're going to if you're going to run and race a 5k really hard, like you're probably going to want to run a little bit before the race to really get the blood flow in, to kind of get your heart rate up there closer to that that higher level so that when the when the race starts you can just go out and hammer it from the beginning. You're not doing that for a 50k. So, you know, it, it depends on on what your warm up normally looks like, but for me, like my normal warm up before every every run during the week, like I'm doing some lunges, I'm probably doing some jumping jacks, Doing my leg swings, like I'm doing all these kind of things to help wake my body up, wake my legs up, uh, get my my hips and knees and ankles all moving through some ranges of motion, so we're ready to go. If when I show up for a 50k, a I'm not usually just rolling right out of bed and out the door and five minutes later to go run, so I'm already kind of a, more awake anyway. Um, but yeah, like you know, I'm walking to get the packet, to pick up the bib, to check in. To to you know maybe find the bathroom like all of those types of things I'm walking back and forth to the car a couple of times like I'm absolutely counting that as my warm up Am I going to do any lunges I might do one or two but I'm not going to do my normal like 35 lunge rotation I'm not going to do the full matrix like I do at home every morning um, I might do some leg swings to just kind of really loosen up the the, the hips um, wh- What I'm going to try to do and the reason I'm going to do a couple lunges still and a couple leg, sw- leg swings still is I'm going to try to get my glutes kind of firing woken up ready to go. Right, but I don't need to I don't need to do a lot because yeah, I'm gonna be out there for six, seven hours probably, depending on the terrain and, and all the those types of variables. So like I, I don't need to like I'm gonna not only is my warm up gonna be part of that walking back and forth, but the first mile or two is probably gonna be part of the warm up, right? So yes, I think you should do some type of warm up before you're a fifty K or before a marathon or before any type of longer distance something or another. Um but it may not look the same as as your normal, you know, run b- warm up before your run in the morning on a Tuesday, right? Like, like there's going to be some variance there based on the duration of the run, what you've got going on, things of that nature. So hope that that makes sense, Karen. Hope that helps you know, sets your mind at ease. That, that just walking back and forth a couple times, that's probably a good start, and probably don't need to do a whole lot more than that. And I uh, hope you have a great race. Next question from Derek: How easy should someone take it after coming back from a quote unquote normal case? Of COVID, meaning no hospitalization. Uh, I'll probably have gone ten to twelve days without a run. So, first of all, Derek, I hope you're you're feeling better. Um, and and I don't mean to to nitpick here, but I think that we're still at a point where there are no such things as quote unquote normal cases of COVID because we just don't know that much yet, right? Like like we kind of know ish, but it's still a lot of unknowns. And from folks that I've talked to or or you know stories that I've heard. Um even a, a non-hospitalization case, even a milder case of COVID, which thankfully it sounds like that's what you've had, so that's good. Um there can and often are various downstream impacts that we don't notice at first. You know, it could be some lung issues, could be some you, a whole host of things, right? Um hopefully you don't have any of those. But all that to say, coming back from COVID, I mean I baby steps, man. I, I would go baby steps for real um, nice and slow. Maybe even something as simple as like starting with a run walk. Even if you haven't done run walk ever before, not in years, um, start with a real short run interval and a short walk recovery. And probably like, I mean, maybe just 10 minutes of a run total. So maybe like, you know, 30 seconds in a minute or one minute in one minute, whatever really easy. I mean, you almost can't go too easy here. Maybe even start with just a, a few days of just good walking you know, going for a 20 minute walk first and see how you feel. And it's, it's all going to come back to how you're feeling, right? You might feel real good the first couple days. Um, and then you, you try to run a little bit longer and you just can't, you're just worn down. Speaking of which, how worn down are like, like, are you then shot? Like if you go out for a, a two mile run, are you shot th- for the rest of the day? Like can't even get off the couch. Well, there's a good sign that, that running two miles too much right now. There's still a little bit of COVID whatever going on in the, on the background, so, you know, there, to, as far as I'm concerned at this point, and maybe maybe this will be the case forever, um, there's not going to be any standard um, timeline for coming back to running after, after you know, having a, a case of the COVID, um, and maybe not ever even a normal case. You know, and I, I think of, like, even professional athletes that have gotten it. I, I watch a lot of, of British soccer, right, or British football, as I like to call it, um, a lot of the Premier League. And, and I mean, there've been guys that have been out for six weeks with COVID just because they were so weak and so worn down. Um, and there are guys that, that, you know, were out for a week, you know, they, they, they tested positive, uh, you know, a week or two later they, they tested negative. They were through their quarantine, never really any symptoms, never any issues. They're back to, to playing at a, at the highest level. Um, and, and I, I bring that up to say, you know, these are guys that have in theory, the best access to metal tr- medical treatment outside of like, maybe like presidential royalty level right but as far as as having the, the the access and and the the no cost factors at all i mean they've got it right these teams are, are worth hundreds of millions of dollars they're not going to cut any corners when it comes to you know some of the best footballers in the world and taking care of their health um, these guys are, are as healthy as they can be i mean they're so strong so fit so well trained and it lays them out for six weeks eight weeks so All that to say, it doesn't sound like that's the the level of of case that you have, and hopefully that's not the case, but there is no projected timeline. Just as easy and slow as possible, recognize there might be two steps forward, one step back, there might be two steps forward, three steps back once in a while, like just keep it slow, take care of yourself, plenty of rest, and uh, don't try to ask more than what you're capable of at the time, what your body is capable of. And hopefully, it won't take you long to bounce back. Hopefully, you really have one of those really truly mild cases, and you'll be good to go in in a week or two. No factor. Um, But if not, don't try to force the issue. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, But hopefully, uh, you're feeling well, and uh, hopefully that uh, that trend continues. Derek, good good luck to you, and thank you for the question. Um, Next block, we got we got the 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 monthly block of questions from Mona here. Uh, First one: What are some myths or beliefs that you have been uh, that you have seen broken or have let go of in the past few years uh, or, you know, just as it relates to running in general or your own running journey. So, uh, I mean, I feel like I've I've covered these uh, a few times, um, but it, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, hesitating to go back and, and address them again. You know, things like the no pain, no gain mentality or that you have to run fast to get fast. I used to believe that. I mean, if you go back into the archives, I think it's still there. A uh, post I wrote, you know, five years ago, six years ago that was like, hey, if you want to run faster, you got to run faster. I don't necessarily believe that anymore, clearly. Um, you know, there's still some truth to it, but like to get fast at the marathon, you don't need to just focus on speed all the time, right? You got to build your base, got to build your endurance. Like that, that is going to do more for you than hammering out a bunch of 400 meter repeats or something like that. So you don't have to run fast run hard all the time to get faster. In fact, as you have probably heard me say once or twice, the best way to get faster is to run easy most of the time. You know, that's, that's, that's how it works from a physiological perspective. Um, you know, other myths that I've let go of, you know, the idea of, of carb loading the night before a a marathon or something like that. Like I just laugh at that idea now, all that to say, if, if you do that and it works for you, rock on, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that this is a, a one size fits all bit of advice, but like I used to carb load, right? I used to be all in on the spaghetti, the pasta, the potatoes, all that. And like now, whatever, like I don't, I don't really eat. Uh, Give me some fruit. Give me some yogurt. That's all the carbs that I, that I eat, uh, before uh, like a long race or something like that. Good to go. Never have any real issues with, with fueling. Um, likewise, you know, when it comes to like all this stuff is obviously related to my heart rate training, my low carb stuff. Like those are, those are the ones that I've really changed on. Um, you know, like, like I don't need to fuel a bunch during a run. I don't need to eat before a run. Like I can run fasted fine. No problems. Um, you know, I don't, sometimes I will fuel, especially during, during a race to just try to give myself the best chance of success. But like, I'm not worried about hitting the wall anymore. Like I'm not worried about any of those types of things that, that I used to be really worried about because like, if I don't fuel here, I'm going to be in trouble. Yada, yada, yada carb dependent, like eh, not there anymore. So, you know, like, like the idea that, that fat adapt fat adaptation doesn't work. Like, I don't believe that to be the case. Now, again, I don't believe that you have to be fat adapted, but this idea that like, well, if you don't eat enough carbs, you'll never be as fast as you can possibly be. Like, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't buy into that way of thinking either. So, you know, a lot of, like a lot of those dietary type of training style things are things that I've changed my mind about. Um, and I'm sure there's probably dozens of other ones, but those are, those are kind of the big ones that, that really bubble to the surface uh, the most for me. Uh, next question from Mona. Is running twice a day a bad thing or is that just a myth? Um, I would say maybe. And this is one of those where, uh, again, like I mentioned earlier, there's, there's a lot of questions this month where it's like, yes, and, or neither, or. I mean, it's just like, there's a lot of, of variables that are at play here where for sometimes, for some people, running twice a day, terrible idea. For other folks, absolutely a great idea. For a lot of folks, eh, it, it it can be fine. It doesn't have to be. Um, you know, it's not like it's not like running twice a day is this like miracle training secret that like if you do that you're going to be great and, and it's going to you know move you forward on on all your dreams and goals and ambitions. Like running twice a day is a great way to add more mileage to your routine, right? But is it the only way? No. I mean, sometimes maybe. If you're already running six or seven days a week and you're trying to increase your mileage and you don't have time to, to run a lot longer with any of your runs, then then all right, maybe maybe a couple of those days you, you run you know a, a few miles b- before work or a few miles at lunch and a few miles after work, and that's a chance to add a few more miles to the mix. Um, sometimes maybe your long run you don't have time to do the full long run because you got stuff with the kids or you got stuff with the family or you got stuff with whatever, and so you get you know ten miles in in the morning and ten miles in, in the in the afternoon um, after work or after whatever. And that gives you 20 miles for the day because you couldn't get, you know, 18 or 20 miles anyway. So that's fine. Um, you know, if you're feeling strong, you're feeling healthy, you're not feeling run down, you're not feeling sore and fatigued. You're not like struggling to wake up in the morning. All those types of things that basically says you're feeling good. If you want to run a little bit more on a a second time of the day, great. Go for it. No problem. If you're tired all the time, if you're chronically tired, if you're chronically sore, achy, you got, you got something that, that doesn't feel right. Um, and not just like a little bit sore cause you, you had a hard workout yesterday, but like something, you know, some like, type of a niggle or something like that. Well then running twice, like that makes zero sense, right? There's no reason for that. As a coach, I would say that running twice a day is not something that most of that I, that I encourage really any of my athletes to do if they're, they already have multiple rest days. Like, you know, I'm, I'm on record multiple times saying I'm, I'm a big fan of the rest day that I like a rest day. Um, you know, I've worked with some athletes that have have done some, some streaking at various times. And I'm not like, I don't tell them they can't, but I'm not exactly keen to, to, you know, fully embrace that. Um, but you know, if, if you're, if, if you're quote unquote only running three or four times a week and you're like, gosh, I really wouldn't mind adding an extra five miles to the mix. Like, do you think I can run twice on Tuesday? I mean, sure. You probably could, but what about those three or four days a week that you're not running? Could you just run an, Could you just add an extra run day to the mix? That way you're still getting the, the full kind of, re, you're not interrupting your recovery timeline of running in the morning and running in the, in the evening. Um, so again, lots of variables. Is it, is it universally bad, universally good? No. Is it a viable option in a lot of cases? Sure. Is it a bad idea in a lot of cases? Absolutely. So did I answer your question? Probably not. Guess you know. I I hope that that gets your gears turning, Mona, because that's ultimately uh, what what we're going for here. Um, And and hopefully somewhere in there you'll find the right answer for you, Um, and for everybody else who's contemplating two runs a day at various points. Um, Next question, also again from from Mona. Um, Make sure I am reading the right one here. Not skipping anything. Is there any real benefit of ice cold showers, according to you, in regards to running or recovery? That is an interesting question. Interesting that you should ask that because I've been kind of thinking about doing a little bit of research, maybe experimenting with the cold shower thing for a while now. Um, I've got the, uh, the, the, the what is it, Wim Hof or whatever the the book, uh, the Iceman book that I haven't read yet. I got it on Audible. It's, it's on my my queue of books to, to start listening to soon. Um, as far as running benefit, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of benefit to it right? The, the folks that I've heard that have talked about it, done it, um, say that it's great for, for the mental side of things, for mental acuity, great way to start the day mentally, yada, yada, yada. Um, there's some physiological benefits that I've at least heard touted. I haven't looked into it, so I don't know for sure there yet. Um, but enough that I'm intrigued, right? Enough that I'm thinking about it. I don't know that there's actually super benefits of it to running a recovery. Um, I've, I've been a fan of like cold water immersion as a recovery tool. Um, I think it's more I think it's more placebo than anything else. Uh, I think there's probably some loose benefits to it, but it's not like, you know, it's not like you have to do it or you're you're, you're leaving recovery points on the table. Um, but when it comes to the cold showers situation, my my gut is telling me that it's one of those things that it possibly could be a beneficial thing for just how our bodies work, how our bodies function. And anything that improves how our bodies work and how our bodies function is probably going to improve our running, right? But I don't think that there's a direct necessarily relationship between if you take cold showers every morning, it's going to help you be a better runner. Like, I don't, like, that's not the connection I want to make. Or at least that's not the connection that I expect to learn about. I expect to learn about and and weigh in on my own and maybe start playing with this idea that it's going to help some type of biological functions in my body um, or my mentality or whatever. uh, And those things are going to make me just a healthier person which then in theory could pay off for my running so circularly maybe there's benefits to the ice cold showers thing in regards to running but it's it's not that direct A to B situation, if that makes sense. So great question and and stay tuned. Like eventually I'm going to read this book, right? And eventually, eventually I might start jumping in the pool every morning when it's the pool water is still 50 degrees, which is probably warmer than what they, that they recommend anyway. But I'm not going to start if like, you know, get the, get the chest freezer situation and jump into it when it's 36 degrees every day. Like we're not probably going to start there. Maybe we'll even start in the shower. I don't know. Maybe that's, that's the best place to start. We'll see. Um, or maybe I'll just read about it and be like, this sounds ridiculous and I'm not going to do it. I don't know. We'll see. Stay tuned. Maybe ask some more questions down the road. Maybe not next month. Give me a couple months to get through the book, but you know, we'll see. We'll see for sure. Last question for Mona. When is Rebecca going to come on the show? I would love a, a Q&A uh, for both of you someday. Uh, maybe do a Valentine's Day special episode. Uh, what do you think? So, um, first of all, I think she's already been on the show. Maybe this is before you started listening to the show, Mona. Uh, but back uh, about a year and a half ago, episode 746, it was literally the two of us at the at the kitchen table, having a chat, a su- pseudo interview, but not really an interview, not necessarily Q and A, Q&A, but uh, just kind of a back and forth. Um, but you know, I mean, I'm fine with having her on the show again. Um, so if you can convince her to do it, if you can convince some type of some way to make it happen, I'm down. But I don't know. I'm, I, I'm not. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of like, you. Remember, I don't know how many of you are. I don't know if you're a big uh, Seinfeld fan, Mona um but i feel like this is a this is one of those instances of you know the worlds colliding george's issue with with worlds colliding like rebecca doesn't listen to the podcast she was on it once um sometimes she hears me when she's home and i'm you know recording but you know bringing her regularly on the podcast like that's a, that's that's a potential of worlds colliding not sure how comfortable i am with that but i'm up for it if you can talk her into it whatever I don't think you're going to talk her into it though. So maybe that's why I'll say, if you can talk her into it, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it, but she was on there once. Like I said, episode 746, disruns.com slash 746. If you want to give it a listen, uh, and, and kind of, that was like our, the five year anniversary of the show. I it was a good chat. You can check it out if you're, if you're so inclined, but uh, thanks for the block of questions this month, Mona, as per usual, uh, hope things are well out on the left coast. Next question from Bill, which kind of leads right into the Seinfeld little example there. Uh, in a previous Q&A, you stated that you sometimes unwind by watching episodes of sitcoms. What are your go-tos? Seinfeld is one. Um, although I haven't watched much Seinfeld lately, but Seinfeld is definitely on, on my list. I can, I can watch Seinfeld anytime, anywhere, any episode. I've certainly had my favorites, but you know I'll, I'll sit down for any episode of Seinfeld. Um, but I mean, this is just kind of list off the top of my head. I like Brooklyn Nine-Nine a lot. Big fan of that show. Um, the big bang theory. I know I feel like that's hit and miss with some folks is either people love it or they hate it. I enjoyed it. Uh, towards the end, it kind of got a little, a little bit much, but the the first handful of seasons were really funny. I thought, uh, and I can watch reruns of that. Um, you know, I parks and rec, definitely a fan of parks and rec. Um, you know, I don't know. I I'll watch, I'll watch reruns of everybody loves Raymond. Um, cheers, you know, like, um, I'm sure I'm missing some. I'm I'm pretty much down for any just mindless comedy. Schitt's Creek, love that love that series. Um, if I can laugh at it and pop in and out, I'm good. Um, we're not really watching any like current sitcoms right now, um, just because we're I guess we're not watching as much TV as we used to, which is not a bad thing. But yeah, I mean I'm a, I'm down with just about anything that that you know makes me laugh. Uh, I'm good with Seinfeld, Brooklyn Nine Nine, definitely my two probably most go tos. Um, in part because like, I'm not just surfing the TV anymore. Like I'm like, Oh, if I'm going to dial up something on YouTube or on, on Hulu or whatever, like I bring up those ones. Um, but maybe one of these days I'll, I'll branch out. I've never watched the office. Maybe one day I'll start watching the office lots of people say good things about the office. Uh, so maybe that's, maybe that's on the list at some point, but that one wouldn't be an unwinder, uh, kind of mindlessly watching because I know what's happening now. Like that would be, I have to invest in that one a little bit. Um, but why not? Why not? It was apparently it was a good show might want to check it out one of these days. Uh, but, but yeah, any, any sitcom really is the moral of the story. Uh, Bill, thanks for the question. Next one from Sharon. Do you think Yasso 800s are an accurate prediction of marathon time in a word? No. In a slightly more nuanced answer to this question, which is kind of the theme of this month, maybe, but probably not. All right. So if you're not familiar with Yasso 800s, here is the, uh, the the simple version of it as far as I understand it so Bart Yasso yeah, I had he was on the show like episode three something like that it's, it's been a minute um, but it's like this one workout that he that he kind of made famous obviously it's named after him of doing like 10 800 meter repeats and he kind of found that for him it would correlate to his marathon times meaning if say his goal for the marathon was to run three hours and 30 minute marathon time all right if he did, 10 by 800 meters at a pace of running the half mile, running that 800 meters in three minutes and 30 seconds, and then recovered for three minutes and 30 seconds in between each lap. That would, that kind of correlated to him being fit enough to run that three hour and 30 minute marathon. So for him, it worked out in that situation, but across the board, I mean, come on, like, no, I don't think that works out. Um, because There's plenty of people that, you know, I mean, look at like, here's, here's a ridiculous one, but like, if you could run the 800 meters in two hours, does that mean you're a two hour marathoner in two minutes? I'm sorry. Does that mean you're a two hour marathoner? I mean, probably not. Like there's a reason that most, you know, Olympic level, world-class level 800 meters don't haven't also broken records in the marathon. Right. Um, like here's, here's me for an example, right. Uh, a few years ago, several years ago now, I did some, some Yasso 800s and I was running them at like 335, right? Three minutes and 35 seconds or maybe 340, something like that. But certainly well under four minute pace, right? For the, for the 800 meters. Um, thought, Hey, I'm fit, ready to go. Let me go out and, and try this on, on race day in a marathon. I ran like a 420 marathon, right? And I couldn't have run much faster. I don't, I mean, maybe I could have, I don't know. But like the, the moral of the story is I was able to bang out 10, three minute and 42nd 800 meter repeats and there was no way that I was going to go out and run a three minute, a three hour and 40 minute marathon. All right. Maybe I'm going um, maybe I'm the outlier. Maybe I'm the outlier end of one. I like to think, or at least I don't, I don't like to think I do think that Bart Yasso and there's a slim subsection of folks that they're the outliers where it does line up. Okay. I think they running 800 meters. is a great workout. Great workout, hard workout, tough workout, I can't in my mind wrap around the idea of an anaerobic hard effort, like 800 meter repeats being a direct translation to, well, yeah, if you can do that anaerobic workout that doing that, that it's going to correlate to a a predominantly aerobic level effort over the course of 26.2 miles. I just don't think that's the case. Um, again, I think there's, there's some overlap. I think there's, there's a, there's a certain level of, of trained and, and, Goal times that it it might line up pretty close, but it's really just a a gauge of fitness as far as I'm concerned. Like to do a good Yasso's workout, you got to be pretty fit, but you're just going to be pretty fit in a different way to run a good hard marathon, right? Like, like it's just, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's just some bias that's, that's built in there. Probably there's some biases built in there, but I mean, there's a reason that I don't like prescribe a bunch of Yasso 800s to all of my my clients that are, that are jonesing for a, a marathon PR because there's better ways to get a marathon PR as far as I'm concerned, um, than doing a bunch of 800 meter repeats every single week or every two weeks. Um, yeah. Case, you can't tell Sharon, not the biggest fan. Um, but again, as those always the case, there's a, there's a time and a place when it might work, there's a there's a section there's a subsection of runners where it might actually line up pretty closely, and you know if you like doing 800 meter repeats, which are actually a workout I kind of like doing, like it's a good workout, but let's let's tap the brakes about saying that because you can do X in in, in the 800 meters, that means you're going to do the the similar you know just move that decimal point over one uh, and do it in the marathon. Like <sighs> hard pill for me to swallow. Uh, but thank you for the question. Next one from Brian from the Great White North. Is there a downside to doing body weight exercises five or six times per week instead of two or three? So, uh, I mean, maybe it, it depends. <laughs> I feel like that's, that's the, the answer for, for uh, I said this a few times now, that's the answer for a bunch of these questions. So, um, lots of variables here. W- what kind of body weight exercises are you doing? Um, are you doing the same muscle groups five or six times per week? Or are you doing, you know, the same muscle groups? Like, are you doing, like, push-ups and pull-ups you know, every other day? Or are you doing push-ups pull-ups, you know, three days per week and then doing legs and glutes three days per week on different days and doing core a couple of those days? Like, like it dep- Like, what are your goals? Are you trying to get stronger? Are you trying to, um, like... like I? There's a whole host of variables that are at play to say, in, you know, is this the best way? I don't think there's necessarily a downside to it. I mean, other than, I guess maybe there is. Like, if you're doing... You know, super maximum. How many squats can I do every single day? Like, you could get some some overtraining system going on. You know, even if you just quote unquote just doing bodyweight squats, like you could you could end up overtrained and burned out. You know, like your muscles need some of that bounce back time. They need a little bit of a break, even if you're not doing maximum efforts. Right, even if you're not doing uh, super heavy lifts like you might do in the gym in the weight room, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I say all that, and then I'm talking out of the other side of my mouth as per usual because I do, you know, 32 lunges pretty much every single day because that's my lunge matrix routine. Do, you know, eight different, or I do four different lunge varieties. to do eight reps on each leg. So I'm doing 32 and 32. So I guess I'm doing 64, but 32 on each leg Monday through Saturday. I don't do my lunges on Sunday, but, you know, I don't feel that it hampers my running. But there, my goal isn't to necessarily get stronger. I mean, there's a little bit of strength benefit, of course. But at this point, my goal with the lunge matrix is as much about activating my glutes, getting my, my range of motion in my joints, getting my blood flowing, things like that. So that when I walk out the door, I'm ready to go. So if that's the type of thing is your goal, then probably not any downsides. I still do more focused lower body exercises a couple times a week to try to get stronger. Sometimes they're just body weight. Sometimes they're they're You know, I use some dumbbells or some other, some other resistance, uh, apparatus, um, so, you know, how does that factor into the, the play a little bit? Um, you know, I think, I think maybe the, the better question, if I can be so bold there, Brian, and, and to tell you that you asked a bad question, which I'm not exactly saying, but I guess I'm kind of saying, uh, maybe the better question is, is there a benefit to doing body weight exercises five or six times a week instead of just doing up two to three? Again, it's still, it still depends. There's still some variation there, but I, I think that there's, there's not, that much upside to it in general so you know if if you can do half of the the work or at least invest half of the amount of time to get basically the same result is it worth doing five or six times per week and to me no but if you enjoy it I mean I don't think there's a downside so you know again it depends it depends on your goals depends on what you're trying to do depends on how strenuous the bodyweight exercise workout is because you know if you're doing plyo plyometric type of stuff that's pretty intense it's still just body weight but it's more than just body weight if you get what i mean so like that it makes a difference if you're doing a thousand reps versus if you're doing 10 reps you know i mean like there's so many factors at play here that i can't give you a really a good cut and dry answer um but on the surface i mean my my inclination is to say there's not much of a benefit to it so unless there's There's not much of a benefit to it from the essence of getting stronger. I don't think but maybe it depends, Brian. It depends. Um, I don't think there's a big downside. Not sure there's a big upside. Um, but it depends on where you are, where you're trying to go, what your goals are, things like that. Um, so yeah, this is one of those probably not good answers. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, next, but thank you for the question, Brian, as, as always appreciate it. I appreciate you getting me, me thinking a little bit even though it then kind of forces me to talk myself into a circle and and not really get anywhere as, as a result, which I guess that's the definition of talking into a circle. But anyway, thanks for the question, my friend. Uh, next question from Nancy. What are, what is your prediction on New York and the Boston marathon actually being held in the fall? And can you interpret what they're using for qualifying times or are they filled with past participants, yada, yada, yada? Like how are they going to fill out the field? Uh, I have no idea what, how they're going to fill out the fields of those races. Um, and, and honestly, like I, I didn't even look at it. Like I have no idea. I, I don't know. I, there's not a right answer. I mean, I guess for New York, my, my hunch would be like just to res- to default to the lottery. But you know that sucks if you're going to do a brand new lottery because people that that won the lottery last year, you know, that maybe been trying a dozen times to get their name pulled. They finally got it pulled. Then there's no race, and now they got to get their name pulled again. This like that's there's not a good way to figure out who's going to participate in the runs. And that's assuming that the runs are going to happen, which I I. I've been predicting. I've been optimistic since a year ago, March. Right? I mean, if if you rewind the tape, if we if we if we go back to March's Q and A, April's Q and A, people asking questions. Do you think there's going to be races this year? I was like, yeah, I think you know we'll probably be you know late summer, early fall. I think these races are going to happen. I think they're going to happen. Right? Clearly, they didn't happen. Um, I mean, if you rewind the tape a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago asking, what do you think there's going to be races for 2021? I said, yeah, I think there's going to be races for 2021, but I think my caveat then, and I think it's still the caveat now, is the smaller the race, the more likely that they're going to happen. And I don't mean smaller distance, I mean smaller the size of the field. Clearly New York, Boston, you know, Chicago, Marine Corps, London, Berlin, you know, insert some of these big city, tens of thousands of people running races, races those ones are not going to be small fields if they're going to have the race. So I don't think i'm very optimistic that those races are going to happen this year i hope i'm wrong i hope that come whatever the dates are september october november for the various different races i hope that those races still happen i know that that a lot of us myself included are are as excited about the potential of lining up for a race uh as as we maybe have ever been because we haven't had the opportunity for almost a year now Uh, For some, more than a year, because, you know, depending on where you live and what races looked like for you in January and February last year, maybe you weren't racing at that point. Uh, And then, you know, the the ship sailed and you didn't have the opportunity. Um, I hope the races happen. My prediction is that either they won't or, and this probably isn't the answer that you want to hear, or they're going to look a lot more like London 2020 than we want to believe. Meaning... Those I could see those races. I hope I'm wrong. I hope, I hope that this isn't the case. I could see those races being an elite only race, because they can do social distancing a lot better. Um, because the course isn't going to be as crowded. Have some type of clo- closed course where there's not really spectators of uh, you know in-person spectators a lot around. Um, I mean, because that's what they did for London last year. Because I don't know why. I mean, I'm sure why sponsors and you know having to have a race and yada yada yada. Um, I mean, I think I, I'm not worried about Boston and New York, like disappearing if if they don't happen again this year. I think a lot of races, a lot of smaller races will go under if they don't have races this year and, and they're trying to figure out how to make it happen. But I think, you know, a race with 25,000 people, 50,000 people, um, you know, they're not, they'll, they'll survive may not be ideal, but they'll survive. But I think that the, the, maybe with the world majors situation, there's enough money that's there and corporate money that's there. That maybe they they go this year. All right, we're going to do um, you know laps around Central Park, or you know, I don't know how they do laps in, in Boston. I don't know Boston well enough to do how they do laps, but figure out a way to do a, a six mile lap or whatever, six and a six and a half mile lap, so they can end up with um, you know twenty six point two miles and just let the elites run it. I hope not, but if, if I had to if I had to bet if I, if I had to be on record right now, I'd say that there's more likely that that is how those races happen this year than you know they have. 20,000 people in Hopkinton getting ready to run to, to downtown Boston or 50,000 people on Staten Island getting ready to run to, to Manhattan. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think those races, I, my gut is saying my, my head and my heart are saying, please let them happen. My gut is saying, yeah, right. They, they aren't happening. So we will see. And again, I, it's very rare that I hope I'm as wrong as I am on this one. Um, which I was, I was nothing but wrong on race predictions last year. So hope I'm going to change my tune. I'm going to come at it from a different angle and hope I continue to be wrong, which means that in this case, it'd be a good thing. Right. But, uh, thanks for the question, Nancy. and, And we will see, and now I'm on record. So I guess you can, you know, hold this against me at various points down the road. Uh, if my predictions are sure to be wrong, which they hopefully, like I said, will be next couple questions from Michaela. Where is the most unusual place you have ever run? Um, that's a loaded question because again, loaded questions here. Um, but I think this is one of those, this is one of those fun loaded questions because if, if you ask a bunch of runners, the most unusual place you'd ever run, like, I don't know that there's an answer, right? Like any place that you're like, Oh, you know, I ran at, at such and such location. I ran on top of the mountain. I ran in Antarctica. Like, I mean, not that I've run in Antarctica, but like the people that I have are like, wow, that'd be awesome. Like, like, yeah, it's, 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 you know, not a place that a lot of people run, but like, Oh wow. What a cool place to run. Uh, you ask non-runners and they're like, God running through town. Like that sucks. Like who would do that? You know, like that's unusual. Like just the idea of running is unusual. Um, I think that, that, you know, so I, I kind of tried to rack my brain and like I've run in, you know, various places, obviously. Uh, I think the most unusual place that I've ever run would probably be like on a cruise ship, you know, just cause it's, it's like such a tight track. Um, uh, you know, like 14 lapses a mile or whatever. Like I, I didn't last very long. I lasted longer than I would have lasted on a treadmill probably, but I didn't last more than like a mile or two. Cause it's just so tedious. um, but that's probably, I mean, that's probably the most unusual place. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's others that that would pop out, but I I can't really think of them. Um, because I just like, nothing strikes me as unusual. Like I'm on vacation somewhere. I'm going to go run, right? Like I'm, I'm traveling for, for work. Not that I travel much for work anymore, but like I've traveled for conferences in the past. Um, you know, and like I might, you know, whatever, I go run. Like I think that's what I do. So, you know, I've never really been in any crazy, crazy places. I don't think, but like, I don't know if I was, I didn't realize they were, you know, crazy, you know, scary places. So I mean, whatever ignorance is bliss sometimes. So I don't know, I guess the most unusual place to be on a, on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. Right. I guess, I guess if that, if that counts or not, I, I don't know. Uh, next question from Michaela also, uh, and if you could run anywhere, where would you love to explore on foot? So, so this is like the most cop-out answer of the month, but like I'm down for running wherever, right? Like, like how could I narrow it down? I mean, I would love to run in Europe and explore some of the old historical sites. I'd love to run in Europe and explore the countrysides and the small, small little villages and the small little towns. Um, I'd love to do the same thing in lots of places in America, you know, in, in uh, monument park on the Rocky mountains and Appalachian trail on the Pacific West coast, uh, or the Pacific Northwest coast, I guess what I'm trying to say, uh, Hawaii, Alaska, Maine, like all the places, right? I'd love to do it in Latin America. If I could do it safely, uh, love to run on, South Africa, Af- well, yeah, I'd love to run in South Africa. Check out Victoria Falls and all the, the, the different differences down there than what we're used to here in the States. I'd um, love to run on Antarctica, South America. I'd love to run through the Amazon. Again, if I could, you know, make sure to do it safely, which I don't know that you could guarantee safety through through the, the rainforest, but, you know, we'd love to. Um, of course, you know, various a- Asian places, Australia, New Zealand, like all the places. I mean, like the, the more... And maybe part of this is from doing crawl, right, and kind of seeing some pictures uh, as we're we're kind of you know, virtually running around the world. Uh, but the more places I've seen, the more I'm like, God, that would be like I'm, these pictures are amazing. But I guarantee that the pictures don't do it justice, right? And so, like, I I mean, I've always thought that running through cities is the best way to explore, and, and running through countryside's probably the best way to explore, right? The best way to get a feel for just the diversity of our planet, the the beauty of the different you know climate zones and different different land formations and, and all those types of things. So, I mean, I'm down for anywhere, anywhere running tourism would be like, is, is my jam. Um, not that we go lots of places, not that I've ever stamped my, my passport, but like, you know, in theory it would be my jam. Um, so you know, the cop out answer anywhere would be fine. Um, if, if I had to, you know, nail it down, if you're going to say, no, you can't take the cop out, you got to give me a place. Um, I'm going to go with like the Alps region so you know check checking off a handful of countries through there um probably like i don't i don't know exactly all the the, the details of the the alps um uh, but i'm i'm going to assume that there's some some halfway decent sized cities lots of rural countryside lots of small little quaint villages um you know different climate zones some elevations some descents like all of the things like that would be like like an awesome you know couple weeks of just kind of running and dirt bagging and um sightseeing and tourist in, um, that would be awesome. You know, drinking good wine, eating good cheese, drinking good coffee, you know? Yeah. Sign me up, sign me up. But again, I mean, you know, pick a place and I could probably think of good, you know, running through, through Baja, California. Well, all right. So, you know, deserts, but there's probably some good tequila, probably some good tacos. Um, you know, hopefully they got decent coffee. Like, yeah. Sign me up for that. Latin America, same thing anywhere same thing um so yeah i don't know where would you like to explore i mean that's that's the million i, I don't know anybody would be like i wouldn't want to go there like i'll go i'll go wherever i'll go wherever um because i mean what a, what a great way to see the world right that's why i want to run all the 50 states it's a great way to see the country if i could you know when when the show hits it big and we're making millions and sponsors every year which i'm not holding my breath for that but when that happens if that happens um Maybe we'll expand the horizon out to a little bit beyond just the United States, start punching the passport and uh, see the world. It'd be fantastic. Be fantastic. But thank you for the questions, Michaela. And sorry for the terrible answers, but, uh, you know, not saying they were terrible questions. I'm just saying that it's so wide open that it's hard for me to, to answer, uh, with any type of certainty because I'm down for whatever, down for whatever. Next question from Rob, what is your preferred peanut butter? This is a slam dunk for me. Um, I get the peanut butter that we buy is, I think it's Smucker's, whatever, whatever the, 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 brand is, isn't really, doesn't really matter. Cause it's the, basically the only one in the grocery store that's not, that doesn't cost like $47 for a jar. Um, that is literally just peanuts and salt. That's all I want. Now, if it's, if it's up to me, I'm gonna get the chunky version. Um, if it's up to my family, we end up with the, the creamy version more often than I care to, uh, care to admit. Um, but that's it. I mean, I want the peanut butter that separates, uh, not that I want that, but that means that there's no random like hydrogenated stuff in it, and no random oils in it, um, and there's no sugar in it. Uh, I want peanuts and salt, period. And uh, that's good stuff. That is definitely my preferred peanut. Anything else is too sweet, too too. Ugh. It's like it doesn't even, like Jif, Peter Pan, Skippy. Like they all just ugh. Like they kind of taste like candy. Which I mean, I'm down with candy, but if i want to have peanut butter or candy, I want wrapped in chocolate too, right? Like I want I want my Reese's. Uh, which doesn't have natural peanut butter, but can't win them all. Uh, but yeah, definitely a peanut butter fan uh, with just natural peanut butter. Simple, delicious. Chris Short with his monthly question, asking me to get all kinds of trouble here. Uh, settle an argument between me and the missus. How's that for putting you on the spot? Yeah, it's it's definitely putting me on the spot. Um, shortish recovery runs after a really long run, like 26.2 miles or more. Why are they better than just taking a day off, and why is Melody wrong for nagging me about them? To which Melody, of course, replies, I like how he leaves the important information out. To be clear, he ran the Dopey, 5K, 10K, half and full on consecutive days virtually this year, which is just ridiculous in and of itself, uh, ending on a Sunday, and decided to run on Monday and Tuesday, etc. He returned back to his normal running schedule on Monday like he didn't even do anything previously, so the question should be, how important is it to have rest and recovery so that the minor tears and etc. can can repair themselves? You always say pain free plus three after a marathon. Clearly, there is no pain, so do you just skip the rest day and run as as per your normal schedule? Oh man! So do not send your your marital counseling bills to me, here, folks, because uh, I mean, I think the better question, I, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna be on team melody here, I think, because a, I think that's just the smart team to be on in general. Um, but B, uh, you know, the, the, question being why are short ish recovery runs after a really long run better than just taking a day off? I mean, you're, you're at like the, the question isn't why are they better? The question is, are they better? And I, I'm not convinced that they are right. Like, like I'm not convinced that they're not, I'm not convinced that they're a bad idea. I'm just saying that, that the idea that, oh yeah, you know, going for a run after a long run is the best way to recover. Like that's, that's not, not logic I'm on board with. Um, so, you know, if we're talking about these long runs, talking about this, this dopey situation, um, but you, you come out of the fall, you ran it easy, you were trained up well, and you're not sore, you're not tired, you're not fatigued afterwards. Like, I'm not saying that you have to take a day off the next day, but you know, as far as for recovery, why would you say that, that going for a run is better than going for, you know, jumping on the bike for a little bit? Or going swimming for like now, if you don't have access to those things, so well, then maybe that's all you got. But why, why would going for a, a couple mile run be better than going for a 20 minute walk? I'm not convinced it's better, I'm not convinced it's worse, but it's just kind of like, like there's a lot of variables here. Now, if you're, if you're, if you raced the race, that's different. If you were hammering, we got to take some time off. That's where my pain free plus three really kind of comes in. If you just go out and run that far, but you're not really sore, tired, fatigued, whatever. Like, so clearly you're not pain-free. Do we still have to wait three days? I mean, I don't know. Like, if you're going to go out and run 26 miles on a whim and not be sore the next day, then then that tells me that it wasn't like a big reach, right? Like, maybe you're not running 26 miles every weekend just for, for shits and giggles, right? Um, and that no, Chris, that's not a suggestion. That's not an idea. That's not something that we're going to think about just stop with that nonsense. Um, but if you're able to do that, which you did, then that tells me that like, you know, there's a pretty good level of fitness there that your mileage is high enough. Your body's adapted enough that that wasn't a reach. You weren't sore. So like, yeah, you could probably get, stay right on track the next day. Like, like no big deal, but what's the risk reward, right? Like if there's, if there are some of those little, you know, tears and things like that going on, which there probably are, Pushing it the next, night, maybe not even pushing it, but going out and running again the next day, stressing your body the same way again the next day, like there may not be a lot of reward for that, and the risk could be that something more serious could develop, right? So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know that Melody should be, na- let me choose my words very carefully here. I'm not sure that I support Melody's nagging, but I support N- Melody's line of thinking, and I disagree with your line of thinking that the short-ish recovery run was was the best option. I don't think it's the worst option, but I think that maybe that would have been a good call to just not run for a day and get on the bike, you know, and get a good bike workout in. But who am I? I'm just, I'm just the coach. What, what do I know? Right? What do I know? Um, so yeah, I hope that I straddled the fence enough on that one, but I definitely lean more towards Melody on that one, Chris. Sorry, bud. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you know, you know. Anyway, thank you for the questions. Y'all appreciate it. Uh, next question from Carrie. It's been a hot minute. Jacksonville as in Jacksonville Spartan Spartan, you know, events is a month away. Coach, what do you say? Spartan has a trail race option. Just saying, what do I say? Care you know what I say? No, no, I'm not running. I'm not running your silly Spartan races with you. <laughs> uh, more power to you. Uh, you're, you are an, an animal out there for sure. Um, but uh, you know, I'm still, I'm still riding that, uh, you know, never say never, but not, uh, not, not anytime soon you know, maybe you're more likely to see me come spectate, not at Jacksonville. Cause that's, a, that's a, I, well, I wouldn't mind coming to spectate at Jacksonville. Not sure that's going to happen, but, uh, you know, maybe when you get the Tampa race, it's down here, kind of more in my backyard, not going to come. I'm not, I'm not planning to see that I might come run it with you, but I might come spectate it for you. Um, assuming that that happens later this year. So, so yeah, you know, no, no, I'm not keep asking. That's fine. You can keep asking. Um, the answer is still no, sorry, sorry. Sorry, but not sorry really is how that works out. Another question from Michaela, a real question this time. She says, as someone who runs for fun, any tips on actually racing a race? I tend to run races as you know, pretty much similar to my average long run. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's that's an important question or an important topic that doesn't get discussed as much as, as it could and maybe as it should. Right. Because, um, when it comes to to actually racing a race, it's completely different than running. You know, talking about Chris's question earlier about uh, you know recovery after the long run, after these twenty six point two mile long runs, but he's not racing them, and it's it's way different. It's way different. So if you are thinking about racing a race, I think that the big difference, the, maybe the biggest difference, is the mental side of things. Going into it with a really solid plan, and thinking about all right. I'm going to start the race at such and such a pace. And then I'm going to get to, you know, the three mile mark or the five mile mark or the 10 mile mark. And then I'm going to, you know, kick it into the next gear and I'm going to hold at that pace until, you know, I get to whatever mark. And then, you know, maybe there's only 5k left and I'm going to start to really push it. And then, you know, like really having the mental strategy and the mental pieces about how you're going to attack the race, what your paces are going to be getting locked in on, on those types of things. I think that's way way different or at least something that you, you don't really have to do when you're just going to go out and you're just going to kind of cruise and have fun and not really worry about racing a race. Um, I think that the f- same thing applies for fueling, right? Like having a, a real good plan of like when you're going to fuel, how much you're going to fuel, what you're going to fuel with. Versus if you're just doing a long run, like it might be a little bit more laissez faire, right? Because you're not pushing it. You're not kind of right on that, that line where too much fuel, not enough fuel, wrong time of fueling can really derail you. If you're just cruising, you got, you got a little bit more, of a, of a wider window about when you need to take in calories, what you can eat, what feels good on your stomach, et cetera, et cetera. Um, maybe having some, some more specific kind of plans for pre-run, you know, what time are you going to get up? What time are you going to eat? Are you going to eat? What are you going to eat? All those types of things that again, that when you're, when you're really trying to dial in and really trying to hammer the pace, it's a, it's, it's a lot less room for error than when you're like, eh, I'm just gonna be out and running for, you know, for, whatever, however many hours for this, this race that, you know, you're not really trying to, to hammer on. So I think that that's the biggest thing is, is you need to, to dial in more things mentally. You need to have more specific plans. Um, then at least how I do it. Like if I'm just going go out to, to cruise, like it's pretty laissez-faire. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Like we'll figure it out. We'll make it, we'll get, we'll get through it. But if I'm really trying to race something like there's plans, there's plans. So I think that's, that's the biggest difference. Uh, And of course there's some training differences as well. If you, if you know that, that, Hey, this race eight weeks from now, we're going to try to hammer it. Like you're going to probably want to do some more, um, you know, specific workouts to that race. Maybe it's fast finish races. Maybe it's repeats. Maybe it's some Yasso 800s. Like, I don't know. Uh, but, but you're going to do some, some more specific preparations physically and mentally than if you're just going to go out, Hey, we're just going to run it, cruise it, have fun. Um, then you can just kind of you know, again, you can be a little more laissez-faire in that situation. So I hope that that makes sense for you, Michaela. And and now, you know, things that I have to worry about when you tell me you want to race a race as opposed to, uh, you know, we work together on that as opposed to you doing it by yourself. So there you go. You got, you got that going for you, or maybe you don't, maybe you have that going against you now because I'm doing it. I don't know. You figure that out, but great question. and, And hopefully something that, uh, that, that, like I said, it's overlooked, but it's important. It's important to think about. Um, next question from Chris. I have a tough, a different, not Chris Short, Chris Davis, different Chris. Uh, I have a tough time doing long runs on an empty stomach. How far ahead should I eat something little? You know, whether it's a bagel, fruit, bar, or whatever. Um, this is another one of those questions, Chris, that uh, um, there is no like certain answer. You got to figure out what works best for you, uh, both in terms of time and in terms of what you eat. All right. And you may find that that for some things, like you can eat it pretty much like, you know, Right at the start, like you can eat it, you know, if you're driving to, to a place to meet up for a long run, like you could eat it in the car, right. And have no factor. Some things you might need a little bit more time to digest. It also depends on your GI system, right? Like if it's real touchy, you might need to eat so you have time to, to use the bathroom. If you have a more of an iron gut, you can, doesn't really matter. You're not going to have an issue there. Um, so it just kind of depends on, on what works for you. Uh, and it, it all just comes down to trial and error, right? Like, like I used to eat on my way to the, to the, to the, long run meetup. Um, I'd have like a bar, whatever, and be fine. Um, you know, so five minutes before 10 minutes before something like that. Um, you know, and, and, and be good to go. May not work for you. I, I don't know. You know, so, so it's trial and error, trial and error. And if I, if I may offer a bit of advice on trial and error, when it comes to food and fueling, uh, try it, do you do as much of your trialing and and erroring in a place where you've got access to a, a bathroom relatively at short notice. Um, because you never know when something that you take in has got to come out. Uh, and if it's coming out the the front end, you know, whatever you pull over release, good to go. But if it's coming out the back end, it's nice to have some bathroom options nearby, if you know what I mean. So, uh, just something to think about, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a trial and error situation. Um, err on the side of less is more at first and then kind of see how your body responds and maybe even try some things, um, before your just regular short runs just to see what sits on your stomach. Right now, because you need it, but like use that as the first test run of like, if I have you know half of a banana, like, and I'm just running four miles to my neighborhood, does that feel good for those four miles if I have it right beforehand? If so, then maybe try that same thing on a 14 mile run, you know, and, and see if it, if it still works well for you, still sets well in the stomach, things like that. But it's all, all trial and error, Chris, because what works best for you may not work. Like I don't have anything before my long runs anymore. Doesn't matter how far I'm running, 20 miles, 15 miles, 24 miles, like whatever, I don't eat. I'm good to go. And that's work. That's what works for me. Clearly it doesn't work for you. So I'm not going to tell you to do it that way, but I'm gonna say, you know, maybe right away, maybe a half an hour, maybe an hour. I mean, you just got to kind of play with it and see what works for you. Um, so have I belabored that enough? Have I, have I made that point enough times that, that Chris, you got to do what works for you. And the only way to figure it out is by trial and error one more time. Or is that we good? We're good. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for the, the question. Uh, next one from Neil. It seems like it takes more effort to get the heart rate up while running on a treadmill, is this the case, or is this just my perception? Um, yeah, it, it's probably again another one where there's there's some variables. But this one, assuming all other variables are the same, meaning that assuming that you're running on like the, a flat surface, same temperatures, you know, same pre race or pre run warm ups, coffees, meals, whatever. Assuming that all those things are the same, yeah, it's probably going to take you a little bit longer for you to get your heart rate up on the treadmill because in, in, in actuality, even though maybe it doesn't always feel like it necessarily, running on the treadmill is easier on the body, right? Because when you're running on the ground, you've got to propel yourself forward. When you're running on the treadmill, in theory, all you have to do is bounce up and down because the, the ground is moving for you, right? The, the treadmill belt is moving. So you've got to work a little bit harder to run at a 10-minute pace outside than you do at a 10-minute pace on the treadmill because the treadmill is moving for you right? You don't have to provide the force to move the treadmill belt. If you got one of those, those treadmills that, that, uh, doesn't have an engine. It just moves based on how much you move. I would bet you that it would be pretty much exactly the same level of effort outside versus inside. Again, all other variables, environmental, environmental, environmental variables, you know, heat, humidity, things like that. All other things being equal, it'd be the same on one of those treadmills. Your treadmill has a motor to it. it, the, The motor's contributing to the work. So, you know, and it's not a huge difference. And I'm not saying that the running of the treadmill is bad. I mean, it's not my idea of a good time, but everybody's got to do what they got to do. I'm just saying that that's why it takes a little bit more effort. Maybe you have to bump the pace up a little bit. Maybe it takes a little bit longer. Uh, maybe you have to bump the, the incline up just a little bit um, because the belt's moving versus, you know, outside the ground ain't moving unless you're moving on top of it. You know what I mean? So hope that makes sense, Neil. Uh, hope things are well for you in Mississippi. Next question. Uh, Millie's con- contribution. That's not a straight up correcting of her husband's question. Uh, why is it that I can run for an hour and feel good? But when I walk up a flight of stairs, I feel like I'm dying running easy stairs hard. So, um, this one is, is again, a little bit of physics, kind of like the, the treadmill question was, it was kind of physics related. Uh, when it comes to running on a flat surface, you're not, you're fighting against gravity but you're not fighting directly. Like gravity's not working directly against you, right? Like gravity's kind of perpendicular. It's the forces that's, that's, that you're running against, but you're not trying to to jump. You're, you're just running and gravity's there. When you're climbing the stairs, you're moving in two directions. You're going up and you're going, you know, forward or whatever. So you're going against gravity when you're going on the up part. So that's why, I mean, from a, from a physics perspective, that's why you're fighting gravity more going up the stairs than you are when you're running. Same reason that running uphill is more difficult than running on a flat or running downhill where gravity is working with you. Now the, the, the slightly more layered answer to your question that you didn't ask melody, but I'm going to answer it for you anyway. Maybe that's a sign that, you know, working some different muscles when you're going up, up the stairs, maybe, you know, a little more consistent with the strength training, which you've been, been making strides on this year. Keep it up. Um, but, but in any event, and, and maybe I shouldn't have even said that because at, at the end of the day, the answer is still the same it's harder to go up the stairs just like it's harder to go up a hill because you're working more directly against gravity as opposed to when you're running on a, on a flat flat line um plus plus you're just more trained to run flat right like like your 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 body is is more adept at it it's made those adapt- adaptations like it's it's comfortable doing that you start going upstairs you start going up a hill and like your body's like wait a second what are we doing this is harder so you know it's there's some physics to it. There's some strength to it. But again, even if you do more strength training, like it's harder to go up. It's harder to run up a hill, no matter how strong you are. It's harder to go up the stairs than it is to walk on a flat surface. It's just gravity, 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 gravity. Anyway, hope I got myself out of trouble when I, when I talked about the strength training, like it's going to help, but it's still always going to be harder to go upstairs than it is to go on a flat line or flat, flat surface period. Um, stresses the body different stresses the joints different stresses the muscles different like it's just it's just different it's a different form of exercise um anyway i think i've either got myself in big trouble there or got myself out of it we're going to roll the dice and see how it, see how it shakes out uh when this episode goes out so i hope hope i hope i still have friends afterwards i hope your mel i hope you're one of them melody anyway three questions to go closing in on an hour and a half yeah we're not going to get in under an hour and a half but we're going to get under 2 hours i can promise you that at least i can hope that anyway next question from barb do you have any suggestions for stretching out the tightness throughout the day? I run first thing in the morning and spend most of the day sitting around or moving very little at work. Can you think of any stretches I could be doing while at work that aren't super obvious or take up a lot of time? It seems like there should be some little things I can do to sprinkle in my day, to loosen the hamstrings, etc. cetera. So uh, Barb, that, this, is, this is one of those questions that, that, again, easy to overlook, but you're onto something there. You're onto something there. If you can move a little bit more throughout the day, boy, it would probably help. Ease up the tension, ease up the the tightness of the muscles. Probably feel feel good, help you recover better from your runs. Feel better for the run the next day. All of those things come into play. Um, and yeah, there's absolutely things you can do, but you know some of them are going to be you know they're going to be obvious. Um, so you can kind of hunt and peck and, and, and choose some things that hopefully kind of fly under the radar a little bit more depending on what your work environment happens to be. Obviously, if, you, if you've got like a private office, you can close the door. Like you can, you can do whatever you want, right? You can, you can stretch, you can move, you can, you can do some leg swings, you can do whatever. doesn't sound like that's the case for you. So my suggestions would be, um, first and foremost, you know, stretching would be great, but like movement is going to help to break up the day to relieve some of that tightness and whatnot throughout the rest of the day. So, you know, if you can, if you can fill up your water bottle, you know, make sure you're drinking enough water, drinking enough coffee, drinking plenty of water, drinking maybe too much coffee. Um, why? Because a, you're going to get up to refill your water bottle, refill your coffee cup, but B what goes in has to come out, right? So you're drinking more throughout the day. You're going to have to get up and go to the bathroom more often, which hopefully depending on where you work. Obviously. I mean, hopefully, but you know, most places, they're not going to frown on somebody who has to go to the bathroom right? They're not going to say, no, 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 no. You went to the bathroom an hour and a half ago. You can't go to the bathroom now. Well, you got to go, you got to go, right? So, so you get up and, and you're refilling your water bottle. Then you get up a little bit later, you go out, you go to the bathroom, you come back. So just that, that up and down every hour or two, that can be a big difference and just get up and move. You know, not that you do anything crazy. You're walking to the bathroom, but that's, that's enough to kind of keep those muscles from getting too tight, too stiff from just sitting in the same position all day. Um, you know, likewise, if you're on the phone, can you get up and, and talk on the phone? You know, can, can you stand up at your desk to talk again? You know, depending on the open layouts or offices or cubicles or whatever, like maybe that doesn't work. Maybe that's too, uh, you know, too obvious or, too, you know, not inconspicuous enough, but if that's an option, that's another great one. Um, you know, if you've got s- different snacks, can you put your, you know, snacks in the, in the break room, like you keep it in your lunchbox or whatever. Uh, hopefully it's safe. Hopefully somebody's not going to eat your stuff. Um, but that way you can, you know, when it's time for a snack, you can walk to the break room to get your snack as opposed to, you know, keeping it in the desk drawer. Um, so maybe, maybe there's an option there. Again, I don't know what, exactly what your dynamics are, but that's a, that's a way to just get up and move a little bit more throughout the day. None of those things work. What about, you know, just underneath your desk, bending your, bending your knees, bending your, your, your knee back, straighten it out, kind of doing some, some leg extensions, some leg curls uh, underneath your desk. Same thing with your ankles, pointing your, pointing your toes, flexing your toes up, pointing, flexing uh, those types of things, just getting some movement forcing the muscles to contract and extend, um, or contract and relax. Ideal, maybe not ideal, better than just sitting in the same position all day. Absolutely. So, you know, those types of things. Uh, and again, I mean, if you can, if you can get up and do some, some squats, do some, do some, uh, a lunge or two, I mean, that, that might be more obvious than what you want it to be. But if you go into the bathroom, you know, maybe you get in the bathroom, depending on what the bathroom situation is. If it's just a, a single, you know, bathroom, as opposed to stalls and pu- more of a public bathroom type of situation, get in the bathroom, close the door, do a couple squats, do a couple lunges, use the bathroom, come back out. There you go. You know what I mean? Like, like it kind of is, is how creative can you be? And then just how much do you not care about everybody else looking at you? You know, maybe you got a, a, a break at some point during the day, dial up some chair yoga. I've seen plenty of, of chair yoga routines where again, that might look, it might be a little bit on the, uh, the obvious side, but maybe not depending on what they are and just kind of, you know, sitting at the desk. And, and if, if, you know, If that works for you, that could be an option. So you kind of have no shortage of of options as far as, you know, be creative. It just kind of depends on exactly what works for you and your situation. But anything's better than nothing. Movement counts. It doesn't have to be just like static stretching, yoga, those types of things. Like just moving more throughout the day, getting up, sitting down, you know, standing up to walk to to deliver a message to the cubicle next door, as opposed to sending a, a quick message via Slack. Like that can be something. So just kind of figure out ways to move a little bit more throughout the day. And that might help with kind of keeping the, the tightness at bay after your morning runs. So hope all that helps Barb and, and uh, good luck to you. That, move as much as you can. That's, that's the short answer. But leave it to me to not take the short answer when it comes to actually answering the question. Two questions to go. Uh, one from Shelly. I run in minimalist shoes, Vibram five fingers to be exact. I'm considering incorporating a non-minimalist type of running shoe into my runs once in a while is going back and forth between these types of shoes. A good idea. Is there any benefit to changing up shoes with, uh, with such a different drops or am I just opening the door to possible injury? And should I remember the proverb of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Also curious if there's any efficiency differences in zero drop shoes versus a more traditional traditionally cushioned shoe. So, um, this is, this is one of those questions, Shelley, that, again, there's, there's, some, there's some variables at play. Um, and, and one of the, I don't know if one of the variables is quite the right way of saying it, but there's different camps on this idea. There are some folks, plenty of folks, who really do think that having different styles of shoes... Whether it's Vibrams and then you know a, a more cushioned but still zero drop shoe and then more of a you know a four millimeter a six millimeter whatever like having some different options available I think that that's beneficial because it ends up challenging you in slightly different ways it spreads the stress out because it's going to change your form a little bit it's going to change how you run it's going to change the impact point a little bit so you're not getting the same stress on the same point of your foot every time you run and that can be be good it can it can lessen wear and tear reduce your risk of injury yada 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 um, then there's people like me who are like, man, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, and I think that both options have their merit, right? If you've got a shoe that's working for you, um, if you try to switch into something else, like it's not guaranteed that something's going to go wrong, but boy, it's, it's like you said, it's opening the door. Now I think that, that if you want to try something different and I don't have a, I'm not going to recommend that you don't, I think that it's not a bad idea, especially with Vibrams because there's no, there's no cushion there, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a little cushion underneath your feet. Um, If you're going to try some different shoes, I think that the the key is to to ease into them slowly, right? Short runs, easy runs, nothing crazy. Save your your vibrams for your longer runs, your speed workouts, things like that, that that you're comfortable with doing, that you've been doing forever, that you know will be just fine, and kind of see how your body responds. If your calves are super tight, your feet aren't happy, yada, 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 then there's a shoe that's probably not working for you. Maybe because it's got too much of a drop or there's too much cushion or whatever, it's not going to work for you. Um, I think that that if you're using Vibrams and you want to try something, go with something that's still a minimalist, minimalist shoe. Because remember, minimalist doesn't mean zero cushion. Minimalist doesn't mean zero drop. It just means there's probably not a lot of cushion to it and there's probably not a huge drop to it. So you get something like you know a, an ultra shoe that has a little bit of cushion to it. You know, I'm thinking like the Escalantes are some of my favorites. They have still some cushion to them, but they still have zero drop. So they're going to feel probably semi-similar to what you what you're used to, at least from a, you know, kind of how your foot hits the ground perspective, but it's going to feel real springy, real cushy underneath, which is going to be a different sensation for you. Um, you know, if you wanted to get into something that had a little bit more of a heel to it, some, you know, whatever, pick your insert other shoe brand here. Um, that would be fine too, but I don't think going to, you know, something I'm going to Paint the hokers with a bad brush because it's kind of just the stereotype I have in my head of the hoker these big, thick, cushioned shoes. Like you might have really struggle with something like that. Some and even ultras, you know, even ultra who I'm still not affiliated with, but I just know a lot about them. Um, ultras with their big, some of their bigger, thicker, cushioned shoes, like their maximum cushion. They're still zero drop, but they have a lot of cushion. I don't think those would be good for you either. I would tend towards the the minimal cushion. Uh, medium cushion, something like that, no matter what shoes you might try and just kind of ease into it, see how it works. All right. But, you know, I guess part of me wants to default to if it's not broke, don't fix it. Cause you never know, you never know what, what issues might crop up by just willy nilly changing your shoes. Um, and then you got to put yourself back together and we don't want to, don't want to have to do that if we can help it. Right. Um, but again, I do think that there's benefits to having different shoes personally i have different shoes that i wear that are all zero drop but sometimes that you know they're and they're all ultras you know if we're gonna be honest um but they all you know have different levels of cushion different number of miles on them um and i just kind of mix through them different days based on how far i'm running i wear ones that maybe have a little more cushion i wear my escalantes for my longer runs sometimes uh, and i wear those for most of my runs honestly i've got a couple different pairs of escalantes that i mix in um sometimes I'll, i'll wear something a little bit thinner you know, minimal cushion, uh, just to kind of get out and cruise, you know, just for a short five or six miles in the neighborhood. No problems there. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know as runners, right? Like the more shoes, the merrier, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go crazy with going to the, the. you're, you're wearing the Vibram Shelly. You're pretty much on one end of the spectrum as far as minimal cushion, zero drop, right? Like you're about as far on that end of the scale as you can get with the Vibrams. I wouldn't go all the way to some maximally cushioned 12 millimeter drop. Like that's, that's going to feel like running in, in freaking you know, platform heels to you. Um, so, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to try something different, try something similar ish, that's not exactly the same and see how that goes for you. Still ease into it carefully. Uh, last part of that question. I also curious, is there any efficiency difference in zero drop versus the more traditionally cushioned shoes? I mean, minimal, minimal. Uh, yes, if we want to get all technical, yes, there's probably some efficiency differences. Um, you know, that's why the, the elites are all wearing the carbon fire fibered shoes, the, the, the PED shoes, if you ask me, um, because there's more, they're more efficient or whatever, they return more energy. I feel like they're cheating, but that's another co- topic for another day. You and I that are running, you know, normal person paces, um, I mean, minimal difference. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't factor into too much about that. Just, you know, comfort how your body feels afterwards. That's what matters most. Um, you know, and, and the efficiency debate is, is splitting hairs that quite honestly, I like, I haven't looked at the numbers enough, but like, it's not, it's not the difference between running a four hour marathon and a three hour marathon. It might be the difference between, you know, four hours and three fifty-seven. which, you know, if those three minutes matter to you, okay. But I mean, I feel like if I get better sleep, train a little bit more, the three minutes take care of themselves, but you know that's that's just that's just how I feel. <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, but thanks for the question, Shelly. Last but not least, one more from Melody this this time around. I think it's a couple a couple few questions from Melody this month, which is about about on par. So well done, Miss Melody. Uh, next, last question: um, How is your posture training going? Does it work? So if you missed it, one of my emails recently ish. Uh, I bought this this uh, strap thing, posture corrector thing. Uh, off Amazon, that's kind of like a glorified backpack. It doesn't have any backpacks, backpack storage to it, but it's got the straps, and uh, you kind of tighten it. Helps to hold the shoulders back. Ultimately, what it does is it helps to. Um, you put it on with your, you know, when you're in good posture, you got your shoulders back, chest out. You put it on, strap it on, and then when you start to hunch over, which I'm guilty of doing quite often, it kind of reminds you that, like, oh yeah, I'm trying to keep my shoulders back. Um, it's going okay. You know, when I when I when I use it consistently, it works. When I saw your question. It reminded me to put it on and it's working. I'm wearing it right now. Although I stand up when I record these. So usually my posture is pretty good when I'm standing. Uh, but I was going through the, the, you know, typing up the blog posts and stuff, sitting down. I was like, oh yeah, better put this thing on, uh, put it on. And immediately it was like, oh yeah. If I find myself sitting up straight, uh, not reaching as much, not slouching, all those types of things. When I wear it consistently, you know, a couple times a day or whatever, um, I do pretty good at maintaining it. When I go a few days, which I have been a few days since I wore it last, uh, definitely starts to my posture starts to return to its normal slunched over position. So I guess I would say that it's not going great, but it definitely seems like it's working. The early returns are that it was worth the $20. I'll tell you that much. So, um, you know, the more I keep wearing it, the more I'm sure I'll be be adjusting. The first few days, it was pretty rough. Like I was constantly holding my shoulder blades back and my back muscles were telling me. Uh, More recently, I mean, I've had it for about three weeks now. Uh, More recently, I don't seem to have any, you know, upper back soreness because of it. So hopefully that means my muscles are starting to, to do some of that work. Uh, but it's still not automatic yet. Still not automatic yet. Still, still training my body to, uh, keep those shoulders pulled back, uh, head up, chest up, all that kind of good stuff. Good posture position. So, um, so yeah, jury is still officially out, but seems like it's, it's working like any good tool when I use it, right? If I don't use it very often, it doesn't work very well. Imagine that. Imagine that. But, uh, that is, uh, that is it. We made it. Less than an hour and 45, which I don't know, I guess it's one of the longer episodes, but not into those, not in the two hour territory, which, uh, is a place we've been semi recently. So, uh, thank you all for the questions this month. Um, as per usual, Be curious to know what you think. What did I get right? What did I get wrong? What do you disagree with? What do you shake your head about? Let me know. At Dizruns on Twitter. At Dizruns on Instagram. Uh, Also, Dizruns at gmail.com. And of course, you can head over to the show notes for today. We got some memes. We got some gifs. We got some shenanigans some some tomfoolery. Maybe even a couple of links in there as well. Uh, Pretty much have something for each question. Which sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. But that happened this month. So check it out. Uh, Dizruns.com slash 913 is the link. You want to join the party? You want to join this this. Band of Merry Misfits, get your questions answered next month, uh, or you know anywhere down the road. Uh, disruns.com com slash Facebook is the link. Or the next time you're on Facebook, just search for the Dizruns Tribe. Ask to join. We let you in. We, we basically say you're innocent until you prove yourself guilty. If you come in and you know you just like we have a no douche rule. If you come in and you're a douche, we're gonna kick you out. You come in and you, you participate or you lurk or whatever, but you're not a douche. We want to have you around. We want to keep you keep you in the crew. Uh, cause we got we got a pretty good crew in there, I think. I know we have a pretty good crew in there. Uh, so we'd love to have you join us. Uh, Dizruns Tribe on Facebook, com slash Facebook. We'll get you there as well. Uh, and with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, as per usual, thanks for listening. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your attention. Thanks for grinding out an hour and whatever, 30 something minutes by the time this is all said and done. Uh, appreciate it. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this one, hit that share button. But uh, I don't know. Uh, sharing an hour and 40 minute podcast may or may not be the best idea, but I'll take it. If you want to share it, I'll take it. Uh, And until next time, y'all, please be well. Take good care. Thanks again for listening. And uh, talk soon, right? (sighs) See ya.